Hello, this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist, episode 15. Welcome back. And I would like to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has been listening to these um, episodes of The Cunning of Geist. I'm pleased to report that we have over 3,000 downloads so far. Uh, we're ranked number 12 in the top 20 philosophy podcasts on feedspot.com, and it's all very exciting. So, again, thank you for tuning in and, um, and listening to, uh, uh, to these episodes. Also, um, please keep in touch with me. You can reach me on Twitter at the Twitter handle, at CunningOfGeist. It's got my name, Gregory Novak, but the handle to reach me is at CunningOfGeist. And also, I have a Facebook page for The Cunning of Geist on Facebook, where I announce when the next episode is going to be up, and I talk about various things. And on Facebook, you can find that at Cunning of Geist as well. So um, also, please, if anyone listening is not currently a member of the Hegel Study Group on Facebook, you're welcome to join. I'm one of the admins there, and um, I contribute a lot there. So um, please, we discuss Hegel in great detail there. And we'd love to have you uh, as a member. So you can find that on Facebook, the Hegel Study Group. Uh, we now are over 20,000 members strong. So it's continuing to grow very rapidly. And I'm very happy about that. Now, this brings us to the episode uh, today. And um, what we're going to be talking about is the transition from Hegel's science of logic to his philosophy of nature. So the, the transition from logic, which is mind, rationality, to nature, which is the world we live in. How does this transition occur? And this is what we're going to take a look at. As you recall, and we've covered this before, you can divide Hegel's overall system into three parts. First, there's the logic, which is thinking, mind, and rationality. Second, there's nature, which is the world around us, the world we experience every day. And third, there's um, spirit, or geist which is mind coming to know itself and recognize itself within nature. And the key question here that we're going to be dealing with is, why is nature needed in the first place? Why not just, uh, why doesn't mind just exist on, on its own and think its thoughts? Why, why, have, why have nature? What's going on here? So I, I might add, this is a crucially important uh, subject to talk about with respect to Hegel. And there's a lot of debate about it within the uh, Hegelian community in terms of what it, um, what it really means. Um, it, it actually can be a make-or-break issue for many regarding Hegel. And that's why I want to cover it in, the, in this episode. And we may be actually covering parts of this in future episodes as well because it's so important. But to begin, let's take a step back and look at the creation of nature from different standpoints just to get um, a little bit of a foundation here. First, let's look at it from a cultural standpoint. And, and it's really interesting to note um, a difference in Western and Eastern thinking along these lines. I'm talking about a very broad macro basis. Uh, in general, um, Eastern culture, Eastern religion, Eastern philosophy tends to be more circular in, in nature, where Western culture and philosophy and science is more linear. Um, this certainly harkens back to the left brain, right brain, divided brain that we discussed in episode 10. It, it, 
if you recall from that episode, uh, the left brain tends to divide and divide and divide where the right brain encloses, um, encompasses everything. As a symbol of that, the line divides space where the circle encloses space. And so obviously, Western culture is much more left brain, much more dualistic, uh, tends to divide everything with clear cut lines of demarcation, where on the other hand, Eastern culture is more combining the two opposites and enclosing them. Uh, the famous yin-yang symbol within a circle is a great symbol of that. So right from the beginning, it's important to recognize that creation may be more of a Western concern than an Eastern concern, uh, for starters. But let's look at the creation story from different religious standpoints. The oldest religious text in the West is certainly the Hebrew Bible. And Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And it begins right off the bat with a division. In the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. In fact, the first word in Hebrew of Genesis is Bereshith, which means it's translated as in the beginning. And if you note, the first letter of this first word, Bereshith, is the letter B. And B, as it's called Bet in the Hebrew alphabet, is the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, a, or Aleph, as it's known in Hebrew, is the first. So it's Aleph, Bet, it's just like our A, B in our alphabet. Um, but B is the second letter. Now, by putting B as the first letter in the Bible, the first letter of the first book of the Bible, of the first sentence of the first word, the Bible is signifying that the universe is dual because B is two. It's the second letter. It's divided. So the Bible starts with the number two, not the number one. It's there are two, heaven and earth. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. And if you study any Kabbalistic writings, they put great importance on this fact. So, as we've seen, left-brain duality seems pretty much baked into Western religions. But it's not just Judaism. This duality is also included in Christianity, which adopts the uh, Old Testament as part of their faith. And it's also within Islam. But not so with the East. The uh, oldest religious philosophical teaching in the East are the Hindu writings. Um, and they teach that the time is circular. They believe um, they believe this, and it's certainly an undercurrent of, of all Eastern thought. And yes, there are different variations, different takes on this, um, different schools. Uh, there's so many in, in the East, so many interesting philosophies. However, just in a general sense, that's true. Um, I've mentioned before the I Ching, which was very influential on me personally. And um, there's no creation event in the, in the I Ching. It, and it's, you can portray the 64 hexagrams in a circle. So, and to oversimplify, over half the world sees no need for a creation event, which I think should be noted. Uh, yet the West does, and Hegel was certainly a Western philosopher, and we're going to take up his, how we, his take on this in, in a few minutes. Uh, but let's just quickly review some of the other, other philosophers before Hegel. Let's start with Plato. Um, Plato clearly saw two worlds. He saw an internal world, which is comprehended by reason, and a physical world of changing sensation. 
He also believed that, uh, or when I say he believed, we only know this through his writings, which are dialogues between people. But so we have to surmise what what he actually thought through what his characters say. Um, but he felt that anything that comes into being must have a creator. In his Timaeus, he identifies his creator as a demiurge, the, the architect of the universe. So here Plato is also laying a foundation for uh, for Western, Western dualism. Um Next, there's Aristotle. He also believed in an unmoved mover of God, um, a God that thinks his own thoughts. But he, Aristotle, interestingly, did not hold to an actual creation event, per se. He thought time was ongoing. It has always been and always will. And interestingly, this caused his physical theories to be banned by the Catholic Church in the famous condemnation of 1210 to 1277. Um, they took the creation event as very... Um, central to the, to their religion, and um, did not want to have any part of Aristotle's theories um, on this regard. Now, I mentioned before that um, Christian religion adopted the Old Testament um, Hebrew Bible. The in Islam, the Quran, um, they speak to many of the stories in the in, that appear in the Old Testament, but it's not an uh, they don't do not adopt it the way that the Christianity has. Um, now, uh, moving on to uh, Kant, uh, just very briefly here, uh, um, he he believed in, in in God, but but he also said that the the concept of God cannot be proven, which is consistent with his philosophy. But he did interestingly say that uh, we're certainly better off believing in God than not believing in God, and he linked this to his moral ethical code. Again, really oversimplifying here, but just wanted to get that in. And just one other point here while we're talking about religion, there's a whole other um, school of thinking that um, uh, there w- was a creation event, but it, but it was done by a, a bad God, if you will. This is the, sort of the Gnostic teaching. Uh, some feel also that the, the world is an illusion, that um, yes, what we see here may have been created, but it, it's, it's not real. Um, it was done in error, and that explains all the evil in the world. Uh, I've mentioned um, A Course in Miracles, which is a m- more contemporary book. It, it was um, written in the 1970s, and um, it, it teaches that the world is an illusion. It was made um, as an attack on God, as a matter of fact. And as I've talked here before, the, the Gnostics, who, were, who rivaled the early Christians in terms of their own interpretation of Christianity, they they had they developed whole stories uh, um, and whole uh, whole um, written works on on how this the whole thing got screwed up um, and and um, evil entities were in fact the, the the creator of the world. But again, we, I've dealt with, with that a little bit before. I just wanted to mention that. Okay, uh, that's philosophy. That's uh, religion. Um, Let's talk about science now. What, is, what does science have to say about creation? Well, um, actually a lot, uh, starting with, with the Big Bang Theory. Um, this brought a whole new wrinkle to creation, and it got everybody excited uh, because it, it, it pointed to a, a point in our past where things began. The Big Bang actually started in various theories around the 1920s, 
And, but it did become generally accepted around the mid-1960s as more and more evidence seemed to support the fact that there was an initial Big Bang of, of everything um, some 13.8 billion years ago. And when I say at the beginning to everything, I mean everything. It's all matter, all space, all time. Everything began at this point in time some 13.8 billion years ago. Now, there's questions of whether it started as a single point where everything was just condensed into this one little point or whether maybe there was some primordial soup or some maybe it was as big as a tennis ball. Um, they don't really know. Scientists can trace back um, the physics back to a certain point, but when they get real close, I mean, to a few seconds of the Big Bang, then everything breaks down. All our physical theories break down, and they really have no idea what happened at that point in time. So that's pure speculation. Um, anybody's guess is as good as anybody else's. But again, all this happened, you know, within the first second. However, after this first second, or actually um, part of a second, um, an inflationary phase began where the, the space exploded, it got much bigger, um, and uh, temperatures began to drop um, subatomic particles began to be formed. So this was a process that occurred during this inflationary phase and this cooling phase. It, it, again, initially, if the whole universe was condensed into the size of a tennis ball, there's going to be a lot of energy in there, a lot of heat, etc. Then science tells us approximately 400,000 years later, um, atoms began to be, be formed. Um, radiation was also formed at that point point, which is separate from matter. And as a matter of fact, some of that initial radiation that was formed is still around today, and that's what led to confirmation of the Big Bang Theory in the first place. And over the next few billion years, the structure of the universe began to take shape with our stars, galaxies, etc., and clusters of galaxies, superclusters were formed. Now, there's still a lot unknown, though. Uh, I mean, it's really important to keep that in mind. Um, there are even issues uh, that come up with the Big Bang, not to say the Big Bang didn't occur, but just what regarding that, how much we don't know. One big thing is the whole issue of dark energy and dark matter. It's, um, scientists can tell by what we know the, of the universe today that there, there's a lot missing from what, what we see. They call it dark energy and dark matter. They have no idea what it is but it's a very big part of the universe. Science currently estimates that 73% of the universe must be dark energy and 23% must be dark matter, which leaves, um, if I do the math right, 4% for regular matter. That's 4% is our stars, suns, moons, planets, asteroids, comets, etc. So what we see out there, the visible universe and the visible energy in the universe is less than 1 20th of all that there is. So what is that 19 out of 20th? What is that? Nobody knows, and they can't even guess. They can guess, but they, there's no way to know what it is. So that's a, that's a big unknown, and once the, that gets to be solved a little bit, it may change a lot of how we, how we look at the Big Bang. Another issue with the Big Bang is the expanding universe. Um, as I mentioned, uh, the universe is expanding. It's been doing this since um, the first second of its existence. Uh, but a, a key question that gets asked is, well, what is the universe expanding into? If the universe includes all space and it's expanding, is there a higher level of space that, that it's expanding into? Well, science, is, 
Scientists say no. Um, some say there's no answer here. Some say that it's a foolish question, but is it? Um, some scientists give the example of blowing up a balloon where the balloon gets bigger and bigger and things move farther and farther apart. You know, dots on, you paint dots on a balloon. As the balloon gets bigger, the dots move further apart. But again, the balloon is still expanding in space. Um, so what's going on there? Um, I've actually personally thought that maybe it isn't space that's expanding, but the things in space are shrinking. If that were to occur, that would have the same effect. Um, and that gets you around the problem of, of what space expanding into. But again, um, these are questions that will need to be addressed. Time is also an issue here. Uh, um, scientists say that time started at the Big Bang, that there wasn't time before that. Space-time was created at the Big Bang. So the question is, well, what was going on before the Big Bang? Well, there wasn't before because there wasn't time. Well, okay, maybe there wasn't time as we know it, but may, there had to be some higher order abstract change or time, maybe not call it time, but call it something else, but something logically, rationally preceded the Big Bang to, to make the Big Bang. Um, now, um, we've talked about uh, time in this in this sense in episode eight, which is called Time, God, and Hegel. I may do another episode on it because it's it's so important. Now, another issue that the Big Bang brings up is is God, actually. And many um, religionists, um, creationists actually point to the Big Bang as saying that's proof that there is God, um, that anything that comes into existence must have a cause. The universe came into existence and so it must have a cause, um, God. Um, other people can say, well, we don't know it's God. It could be forces we don't understand. Yeah, yeah that's true. Um, to me, it doesn't matter what you call it. It's an unknown. But that's something for the future scientists to, to wrap their minds around. So let's get now into Hegel. I'll begin this discussion with the controversial statement at the end of the logic. At the end of the science of logic, uh, we are left with what Hegel calls the idea, which is sort of a, the concept of concepts, if you will. And throughout the logic, we've traveled from the beginning. We started with presuppositionless being, and we covered that in the early episodes of this um, podcast. Um, and we end up with the idea itself, the idea being the notion of free thinking, self-thinking, mind, and rationality. Then at the end of the logic, Hegel says the idea contracts itself back to the immediacy of being and turns into nature. Let me quote Hegel at the end of the uh, Science of Logic. Quote, The idea, namely, in positing itself as absolute unity of the pure notion and its reality, and thus contracting itself into the immediacy of being, is the totality in this form, nature. But he also says that the mind logic does this freely. And I quote again, from um, the end of the logic. The passage is therefore to be understood here rather in this manner, that the idea freely releases itself in the absolute, in its absolute self-assurance and inner poise. By reason of this freedom, the form of its determinateness is also utterly free. The externality of space and time existing absolutely on its own account without the moment of subjectivity. Which means that nature was created freely and it also means that nature is free, initially without any notion of subjectivity. In the encyclopedia, which covers 
logic in a briefer form, um, then nature and then spirit. At the end of the logic section of the encyclopedia, Hegel says something similar. The idea which is independent or for itself when viewed on the point of this unity with itself is perception or intuition. And the percipient idea is nature. Enjoying, however, an absolute liberty, the idea does not merely pass over into life or its finite cognition allow life to show in it. In its own absolute truth, it resolves to let the moment of its particularity, the immediate idea as its reflected image, to go forth freely as nature. And he concludes the, um, this section of the logic in the encyclopedia with this. We have now returned to the notion of the idea with which we began. This return to the beginning is also an advance. We began with being, abstract being, where we now are, we also have the idea as being. But this idea which has being is nature. So, what's the issue here? Well, here's the issue. Some take Hegel here as saying something similar to the dualism that we see in um, major religions and in Plato, um, that there's some existing reality in mind of God that is separate from nature. However, there's a different take on this, um, and this position is probably best expressed, or at least well expressed, very well expressed by the noted contemporary Hegel scholar Stephen Hulgate. Um, he believes that nature, in fact, turns out to be what being, the idea, is at the end of the logic. Um, he shows how Hegel traces presuppositionless being through the logic up to the idea that being itself is rational. It is then that Hegel states that the idea once again becomes the immediacy of being, I mean, just pure immediacy of being. And it was in the beginning of the logic, immediacy of being, but now it's different in that it's fully developed thought, fully developed rationality. It's not just pure abstract being anymore. But now we come to the big step. Um, Holgate believes that um, this immediate fulfilled being actually turns out to be nature. In other words, it, it doesn't create nature, it turns out to be nature, um, following the, the, um, what he believes Hegel is saying. It becomes again immediate being, but now with the whole logic behind it. The idea now can know itself, can live and grow in nature, not as a separate entity, but within working itself out, getting to know itself. Um, in contracting itself to immediate being, however, this is very important. It loses the interconnection of the logic. The logic is still there underneath it all, but it's not yet fully explicit as it is in the, in, in the logic. Um, it's only the history of spirit within nature that, that brings it home. So to emphasize it again, crucial point here is that um, this contraction takes place at the end of the logic. Um, the contraction of self-determining reason at the end of the logic is the immediacy of being, which is similar to the pure immediate being at the beginning of the logic. However, now it is shown to be this self-determining reason, but in this contraction, it loses this for the moment. It becomes simple static being that is, and this produces nature. This is what nature turns out to be, the idea in the form of otherness. See, in this contraction, now reason proves to be the negative of itself. It's the idea in the form of externality, the first form of this externality being space. So in contracting itself to, to simple being, the, um, all the beauty of the logic now, it's not lost, but it's, it's, um, it's, it's gone underground, if you will. It's, it's, it's not there. 
Um, and that's what nature proves to be. Reason still grounds nature, but it now has to develop as a guiding force for spirit in the world. Um, Hulgate sees Hegel as supporting um, this, this, this notion, um, and, and he, it's, he sees it as the crux of the matter, um, that, that nature, in the, by turning out to be nature, um, nature must not have the logical determination set up in the, in the logic, as I just said. Um, in other words, logic breaks down when becoming pure externality. It will, of course, return in steps with the arrival of human consciousness and spirit within nature. But that's why nature is, um, is very different, is actually the other of, of, of mind. Um, and this move is not a free act. This is the key thing that, Hegel's, that Hulgate is saying, and that this is a, a point of contention um, within uh, the Hegel community. As a matter of fact, it, it, it may go back even to the, the first um, generation following Hegel. You know, Hegel, Hegelians split right away into the, um, the right and left Hegelians. Sometimes they're called the old and the young Hegelians, where the right, the old Hegelians were, were more into this idea of the abstract, absolute, and God, where the left Hegelians were more into the practical aspects of Hegel and the, the march of history, and um, Marx himself was a, was called a was a, um, a young Hegelian, so we won't won't get into that now. But so, Hulgate is clearly saying that any expression by Hegel that it freely releases itself, etc. This is just um, Hegel metaphorically speaking. And um, but but again, Hulgate does note that absolute reason can be said to be the creative ground of nature, and he sees spirit within nature. It's not that the, the, there's no uh, no spirit here within nature, but but on, on the other hand, being is not prior to nature. Nature um, with spirit in it is actually all that there is, um, and he sees this very much following the logical path of development that was begun in the logic, and. Um, it's really nature is the idea in the form of otherness. Um, there's a similarity to the philosopher Spinoza here, um, that God is not something separate from nature in the world, but actually exists as nature itself. I should point out here, though, that this can be a, um, a trap. Hulgate is not saying that Hegel is a Spinozist um, in, 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 um, in saying that nature is all that there is, such as in pantheism. Hegel sees spirit in nature. Hulgate recognizes this. I recognize this. I think this is the way to look at it. Okay, there's an interesting concept in um, Kabbalistic Judaism um, called Zimzum. And this was a term that was coined by the famous Kabbalist Isaac Luria. So what is Zimzum? Um, Lurianic Kabbalah states that... Um, in creating the universe, God contracted himself in order to make room for the world. This is what Zimzum is, a contraction. He had to make space for the world. And a good analogy, uh, and uh, I got this from some present-day uh, Kabbalists, is Zimzum can be compared to the um, externalization that occurs when one speaks a word. When we speak, out loud, like I'm doing now, we're aware of the words that we're coming that are coming out, but we're not aware of ourselves or our mind. We lose um, for a second um, contact with ourselves, and we just are delivering the word. 
But our mind is still there, of course. Um, but it's just not outwardly present. Um, it's not like when we're sitting there thinking of ourselves. We are still an anchor for when, when we're speaking, but the word is an externalization. And while we're speaking, we're aware of the word. We're not thinking about itself. You can't think of two things at the same time. Um, and Luria is saying that God's creation of the world is a similar act. Um, in the creation of the world, in the um, contraction, allowing the world to come into existence, to externalize itself, um, God is, is um, still there, but there's a paradox. He's both simultaneously transcendent and imminent. And this is a very f familiar or similar concept to, uh, to what Hegel is saying. Just one other comment here on um, Holgate's interpretation. I, the reason I like it and I support it, and I think this is what Hegel was really saying, is that it does pre provide a theodicy, which is um, an explanation for why there's evil in the world. And I guess there's a perennial problem with the dualistic God versus nature concept, which is how does this account for evil in the world? If God is all good, all knowing, all powerful, why did God ever create a world that contains so much evil? And that's a problem that really is... Um, it's not been addressed satisfactorily. However, Hegel's take on this is that the fact that logic breaks down temporarily in the formation of nature, as we've seen, um, it allows nature to proceed along its own, its own lines, um, its own way, like we see in the animal kingdom. And it's not a friendly place. Um, evil may not be the right word when animals eat other animals, etc., but it's not... Um, it's not what we would call, you know, um, good goodness. And we live in that world. We can be eaten by animals. The key part here is that mind exists, is the ground of nature, and it needs to come to life. It needs to grow within nature as spirit. And that's what's, that's what's going on here. It needs to become real to itself. It needs to fight for its freedom. It needs to fight to get to know itself. And this is, um, this is the struggle that we're all going through. This is the goal. So, bottom line, this negation um, of mind by nature and the sublation of both mind and nature by spirit is the grand dialectical move of the absolute itself. And it continues to work itself out today. And just one more thing here. Uh, I want to address quickly um, this notion of, of time being circular. If there is not a specific creation event, it does suggest that the universe itself is, is circular. What I mean by that is it may come into existence, go out of existence, and come back into existence again, on and on. Um, it's not a direct repetition. There may be freedom within each of these existences. But, and as I said, we don't know what preceded the Big Bang we do know current evidence suggests that we're headed for further expansion and a, a cold death of the universe. Everything's just going to be eventually so far apart that there's nothing. Everything will just drift apart. Um, but nobody really knows what, what would happen at that point, or even if that's, um, uh, that's not a proven fact yet. So there is, there's, there is still some open room for the universe to be shown, um, to be born again through another Big Bang process, which is yet to be discovered. And uh, I hope to get into this in a future episode. So to answer the question we started with, 
with the natural world freely created? The answer is there's clearly freedom in the world for sure. As we, just, we did a whole episode last time on this. Um, but no, there was not a specific creation event. So this is uh, Gregory Novak. This has been The Cunning of Geist. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time.